Good morning. What a pleasure it is to see all of you here today to worship together with you. Over the past year, whenever I've had the opportunity to preach, I have been continuing a series in the book of Colossians. This book, or a letter really, was written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome to a church he had never visited, yet a church that he obviously cared very deeply for. While the report that he had received of the church from a leader by the name of Epaphras was evidently mostly good, as Paul praises them for their faith and love for one another, yet it seems that Epaphras also brought a report that the church in Colossae was threatened by false teaching, thus spurring Paul to write the letter. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2, which we looked at last time, Paul turned from a long section of encouraging the Colossian church and speaking of the supremacy of Christ to taking the false teaching at Colossae head on. He contrasted powerfully the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ with the weakness and emptiness of human traditions and the pagan spirits or demons exhorting the Colossians to continue steadfastly in the way that they had been taught. Today we will study verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, where Paul expounds on the glory of the gospel, its fullness in contrast to the shadows of the Old Testament and its victory over the gods of the pagans. Satan and his demons. Let's read the word of God together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We praise you and thank you that you have given us this Sabbath day that we might gather together to study your word, to hear your word together. Lord, we pray that every word that comes out of my mouth would be in accordance with your scripture and that you would use it to work powerfully in all of our hearts, that it would cause us to glorify you and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Our sermon this morning will consist of three points. Firstly, our regeneration in Christ. Secondly, our justification by God. And thirdly, our accusers defeated. Again, that's our regeneration in Christ, our justification by God, and our accusers defeated. Let's read verse 11 again together. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign that you belonged to the people of God. Instituted by God for Abraham and his descendants, being circumcised singled one's entrance into the covenant community, and the neglect of it was considered a grave sin as evidenced by Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, where God nearly kills Moses for failing to circumcise his son. Yet God also made it abundantly clear in the Old Testament that mere external or physical circumcision was not sufficient. The language of a circumcision of the heart is introduced in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. And God promises to do this work in the hearts of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So a circumcised heart is one that loves God truly, that is a part of the people of God, not only externally, but internally in faith. Naturally, that is not something that is done by the individual or by any human beings, but rather is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul adapts this language by applying it to the uncircumcised Gentiles at the church in Colossae, saying that they were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. This and other passages in Colossians lead most commentators to believe that a part of the false teaching in Colossae was that circumcision was still a requirement, including for Gentiles and that one could not belong to the people of God without it. Paul counters this false Judaizing tendency by showing how, while the Gentiles in the church in Colossae did not have a physical mark of their belonging to the people of God, they had received that inward mark, as evidenced by their faith in and love for God. The commentator William Hendrickson points out that this circumcision made without hands is superior in every way to the now outdated and abrogated practice of physical circumcision. One was a minor surgery. One is the inner work of the Holy Spirit. One was outward. One is of the heart. One was a mere removal of excess skin 
One is the progressive putting off and casting away of our entire evil nature. But this raises the question, why is physical circumcision no longer spiritually necessary? I mean, there is no doubt that it isn't, as Paul makes abundantly clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, where he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But why not just continue to use it externally and as a physical sign and seal of the faith, of the spiritual reality of a circumcised heart? The answer is that it has been replaced by the fuller and more universal sign and seal of baptism. Paul makes this clear in verse 12 where he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul explicitly here connects baptism in which you were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God and circumcision, the circumcision made without hands. Unlike circumcision, which was a bloody sign which focused on the coming death of Christ, baptism points to the accomplished reality of Christ's death and his resurrection. Baptism succeeds circumcision as a sign of entrance into the covenant community of God in that it is far superior as women can receive it as well as men and that all are included. In humble disagreement with our Baptist brothers and sisters, we Presbyterians see no reason to discontinue giving the sign of the covenant to our children, just as circumcision was. Only now we can give this sign to our little girls as well. Additionally, baptism serves as a sign and as a seal. It is a sign pointing the recipient and observers to the spiritual realities that lie behind the sacraments. But it is also a seal in that there is real spiritual power to it. Real spiritual power in how it unites us to Christ and to his work. This does not mean that baptism functions ex opera operato, that is, automatically invested with spiritual power apart from faith, where one is baptized and just because of the water something happens. Nor is its spiritual power necessarily applied in the moment in time in which one is baptized. Yet as the Westminster Confession so helpfully puts it, the grace promised in baptism is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs to, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. 
So in the same way, as physical circumcision was intimately related to, yet not one and the same as the circumcision of the heart, physical baptism is intimately related to the spiritual union with Christ that we enjoy. This has real and concrete application for all believers, even beyond the relief of no longer having to undergo a medical procedure to join the people of God. Whenever we see someone baptized, whether an adult or a covenant child, we should be reminded of our own baptism, both our physical baptism and the spiritual baptism that is achieved through our union with Christ. It should comfort us. It should encourage us. It should motivate us. And it should fill us with thankfulness and worshipfulness towards the God who chose us and made us his own. That brings us to our second point, our justification by God. Let's look at verse 13 again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Why is our inclusion in the people of God and our union with Christ such an amazing thing? It's because we were dead in our trespasses. Paul uses the same language in a way that is more fleshed out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were not just lost in our sins and trespasses, mired down in them like mud, imprisoned by them even. We were dead in them, buried six feet underground. We loved that which was evil, and we hated that which was good. We thumbed our noses at the God who created us and sustains us and has every right to demand our obedience. The only just result of this state is an unleashing of the just wrath of God upon sinners. There was no way in and of ourselves to avoid this. We lacked not just the ability to save ourselves from it, but also the very will, the very desire that would even cause us to try. Paul even more specifically addresses the Gentiles in the Colossian church here when he points out that as they were uncircumcised, 
they were not a part of the people of God. They did not even have the law to show them the hopelessness of their situation. They wallowed in ignorance of the fateful judgment that awaited them and their total separation from their God. But God, in his great mercy, did not leave us in that state. He sent his son to earth to take on humanity, to live a perfect life following every jot and tittle of the law, and to die a gruesome, painful death on the cross while all of our sin was placed upon him and all of the wrath that that sin deserved was poured out upon him. Then this God-man, Christ Jesus, was raised from the dead, achieving final victory over sin and death. By placing our faith in him, our sins are paid for by his blood. His righteousness is accredited to us, and we are adopted as sons and daughters of our God. This coming of Christ, this arrival of the gospel, and the spread of it to the ends of the earth, while revolutionizing for the Jewish people also, was an even greater marvel for the Gentiles. And that includes most of us. For the first time, a person could join the covenant community without being a Jew. For the first time, their need of salvation and the way of salvation was preached to them openly. But Paul, crucially, switches in the middle of this verse from using the second person, you, to using the first person, or the third person, actually, I believe, us, when he says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul included himself and all the Jewish people in this as well. For them, the forgiveness of their sins through Christ Jesus was no less necessary. Indeed, as we will see in our next point, the law pointed a finger of condemnation at the Jewish people that placed them in dire need of salvation. If there is anyone who is here today who does not know God in his son, Jesus Christ, who does not place their faith in him and him alone for salvation, who has not repented of their sin and followed Christ, let me beg of you, place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sins, follow him, for there is no other way that you can save your soul from the path of destruction on which it is set. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have placed your faith in Christ, never forget the gospel. Never take it for granted. 
and live your life in such a way that shows its truth. Consider yourselves, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That brings us to our third point. Are accusers defeated? Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. After seeing how we are freed from our enslavement to sin and forgiven of our sins through the work of Christ, Paul shows us here how God put an end to and triumphed over those things and beings which would accuse us. Firstly, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here Paul uses legal language showing how we are in violation of a contract or a covenant. This applied both to Jews and to Gentiles, though in different ways. We see a what I find to be a fascinating example of how the Jewish people explicitly covenanted to keep the law of God in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, which you can turn to with me in your Bibles if you like, uh, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Can you feel the weight of that passage? That the Jewish people are pledging to the Lord that they will follow his covenant, that they will keep it. Yes, they make a verbal vow, but it even goes beyond that. They're making a covenant with God sacrifices are made, blood is prepared, half of it is sprinkled on the altar showing God's obligation and half of it is sprinkled on the people showing their obligation to keep this covenant. 
unlike the covenant that God made with Abraham, where God walked between the animals that were cut open upon the ground, symbolizing that he was taking all of the responsibility for upholding the terms of that covenant upon himself. This covenant with the Israelites placed the responsibility for the keeping of the terms of it on both parties, on God and on the Israelites. Of course, the Jewish people could not keep the law. It is impossible. And the Old Testament is filled to the brim with stories of how they failed in greater and greater and more gruesome ways. And what is the punishment for a party that does not keep its obligations in a covenant? The punishment is death. Death as is symbolized by the blood that is used in the ceremony. So the Jewish people stood in desperate need of a savior. Similarly, the Gentiles were in violation of the law of God in their own way. As Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, where he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And also later on in Romans in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Gentiles also stood accused by the law of God in desperate need of a Savior. Yet praise be to God and to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that because of his death in our place, this record of debt, this accusation that stood against us was blotted out. It was wiped, so to speak, out of the scroll in which it was written as if it never even existed. Paul uses an even more powerful metaphor here, saying that this debt was nailed to the cross in the same way that the accusation against Christ that he was king of the Jews was put on a sign nailed above his head. Picture that, church. Picture a sign with a list of all of your sins Small and large. All those sins which have earned you and me the just wrath of God. All of those sins where you have spat in the face of God and exalted yourself as your own God. All of those sins on a sign nailed above the head of Christ. Placed there as if they were committed by him instead of you 
picture the just wrath of the perfect holy God of heaven against your sins, against my sins, pouring out upon his son upon the cross so that you, so that I might no longer stand accused and condemned by them but may rather be reconciled to God and spend eternity in his presence. How could God make his love for us, brothers and sisters, any clearer? How could our hearts not overflow with thankfulness and joy in response to it? Finally, Paul shows us how Christ disarmed, triumphed over, and put to shame the rulers and authorities. When Paul speaks of rulers and authorities here, he is referring to, in the pagan worldview, the different gods and spirits which supposedly controlled every facet of life, and in the biblical worldview, Satan and his demons. By every indication, interacting with these spirits, gaining knowledge of them, was a core part of the Colossian heresy, thus making it absolutely imperative for Paul to address the issue in what would otherwise seem to be a sort of strange addition to this long proclamation of the gospel. We all know Satan as it is and stories in the Bible of how demons oppress and possess people, tormenting them and damaging their bodies. But Satan and his minions are also accusers. William Henderson points this out in his commentary on Colossians when he says, The work of Satan and his hosts in their attempt to destroy believers is not confined to that of accusation. The baseness The evilness of these hordes of evil appear, especially in this, that first they tempt men to sin, and then, having succeeded in their sinister endeavor, they immediately accuse these same people before God, charging them with those very sins which they, the sinister spirits, devised. We can see this dynamic in Job chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 where Satan in response to God pointing out the righteousness of Job immediately seeks to undermine him and accuse him of worshiping and loving God only because of the things that he has received. Or it says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Yet in the death of Christ, Satan and his demons are deprived of any standing to accuse us. Yes, we are sinners still. Yes, we are deserving of punishment still, but Jesus Christ has already paid the price for us. 
and we are justified in him. In the face of this, Satan and his demons are utterly powerless over believers, completely defeated by the very act which they had believed was their great victory. Paul uses striking metaphors here when he speaks of disarming and triumphing over Satan and his demons. Most commentators see Paul here making a direct comparison to the triumphs of imperial Rome where an emperor would return to Rome after a long victorious military campaign. He would have a great arch built for him in the city. He would march with his legions through it with the train of of curiosities and treasures that they have captured in this foreign land. And then at the very end of this parade came the foreign leaders and rulers and prisoners that they had taken in this campaign, trailing behind in chains with their heads bowed in defeat. That is exactly what Christ has done with Satan and his demons. Christianity is not a dualistic religion like Zoroastrianism or Manichaeism. There are not two equal and competing forces of good and evil. Our God and our God alone is totally and utterly supreme. And Satan, in comparison, is nothing more than a gnat in the face of a hurricane. Our fear is never to be directed towards Satan and his demons, but to be of God and of God alone. So church, we have seen how we have been buried and resurrected with Christ, how we have been made alive and saved from our sins, and how God in Christ has triumphed over our accusers. Let us take this glorious gospel message and make it the theme of our lives. Let us nurture a heart of thankfulness towards God. Let us love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And let us proclaim this good news to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends, that they might be saved and that our God might be glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great and glorious God, and you are a gracious and a loving God. Lord, we can never express sufficiently our thankfulness to you for saving us from death, for saving us from our sins, for making us alive in your Son, reconciling us to you, making us your sons and daughters. Lord, let us never forget this or take it for granted. Let let there be a love and a faith for you that grows in our heart more and more every day.
and let it cause us to live lives that glorify you to the watching world and that point them unto you. We pray all these things in the name of your glorious Son and our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.